0: This is Commerce Shanigans, episode 502, a conversation with Justin Ponser. Welcome to the Comma Shenanigans podcast. This is episode 502. It's our conversation with Justin Ponser. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and as mentioned, this is our uh, great episode as we have a two-hour conversation with colorist Justin Ponser. He's worked in a lot of books throughout the years, but um, you may recognize him especially from doing a lot of amazing colors over Jim Chung's our work. Uh, recently, he's also worked with David Marquez amongst many, many others. He's worked in a lot of books throughout the years when you're a colorist, and he actually mentions this in the interview. If you're busy, you're doing three or four titles a month as opposed to a pen- he's just doing one uh so he's able to do a lot of different books so i uh, i would be a surprise if you've been able to read a Robo comic book in the last 15 years that well maybe not quite 15 but close to that that hasn't in some way have uh, been colored by jim chung or haven't seen a piece of his art like it's just very hard because especially some of the books he's done have been some of the biggest books biggest launches he did um uh, now I'm blanking on the title, but he was involved in Clone Conspiracy, so he worked on that book. He also did uh, Civil War II. He did the in- Invincible Iron Man launch with Brian Michael Bendis and David Marquez. So he's been all over the place. He did the Young Avengers and Children's Crusade, so it's hard to not have seen his colors. Uh, so we actually get the chance to talk to him for over two hours about his process, uh, the books he's worked on. Uh, his history in the business. It's actually a really interesting uh, interview of being able to kind of chat with where he came up, what he did, and how he kind of got started. It's an interesting story for sure. Um, so I think everyone will really enjoy this interview. You can always email me at comic shenanigans at com. Like the show on Facebook, rate new videos on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Upcoming episodes include a conversation with Howard Mackey, and that's at uh, near, I think, the end of September. Um, in the next couple of months, we should be having a conversation with Alex Sinclair, who is an acclaimed colorist as well, um, as well as Tom Beeland, who did True Stories, Swear to God. Uh, There's also another collars we have coming up So a lot of good stuff down the pike that I'm really excited to share Um, And uh, we also have, I think the episode after this will be Comic Shenanigans on vacation And there's uh, a lot of good stuff and good interviews coming up in the next few weeks or months So I'm excited to uh, share as those come available Um, But without further ado, let's jump right into the episode as I sit down with Justin Ponser Justin, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast How are you this evening? Doing well, how about yourself? I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm up here in Canada, and it's uh it's a nice cool summer day.
1: <laughs> how much? How cool? Uh,
0: let's see, well, 20 degrees Celsius. I don't actually know what it is in Fahrenheit, which is terrible.
1: Um, well, it's not terrible because we should be on Celsius.
0: Hmm. <laughs> it, it's been it's been pleasant. It's been uh, hot and humid the last few days, and today was a nice cool breeze, cool day. Uh, it was still sunny, but. Uh, it felt nice and cool, and plus my uh, my office, which had been out without con- air conditioning for about three weeks, uh, finally oh. has air conditioning again, and I feel like I can oh. actually live, because uh, yeah. it was it was atrocious.
1: Oh, yeah. I, uh, here in Florida, if you have no air conditioning, you could die.
0: Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I actually yep. want to ask a question. How long have you been based in Florida? I mean, I know Croston was in there, and I know, obviously, you worked for Croston Is that when you started working in, uh, living in Florida, or...?
1: Yeah, I'm, I took the job in two thousand, early two thousand one. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, that's when I moved here. I lived in San Diego prior.
0: Okay, interesting. That's kind of interesting. Like, is, the, is was the climate that different?
1: Oh yeah, like uh, San Diego is sort of a temperate desert. So at okay. night, it still it's cool. It's very dry. Um, I, it's uh, yeah,
0: not it's, like Florida
1: no like i mean the the house i grew up in didn't even have air conditioning cuz we didn't need it you just needed fans and you opened the windows a few weeks out of the year okay and uh but yeah you can't even <laughs> you can't even think about it here
0: <laughs>
1: i'm just i'm just laughing like hey welcome to the comics podcast so anyway about the weather <laughs>
0: absolutely no i i had one the- i i've had some interesting um uh, kind of tangents in other episodes where we, you know, ostensibly we're here to talk about comics, and I think one we talked about uh, baseball for a while before we actually got into oh, okay. to comics, and uh, yeah, I mean, people like tangents.
1: Oh, for sure. No, it's just uh, for some reason in my head it was almost like you're 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 an anchor person and you're throwing it to the weather <laughs> guy. It's like, hey, we got a cold front moving um, but yeah, yeah. Don't start talking about baseball; we won't even get to comics. <laughs>
0: Fair enough. That we yeah. can do that off, mic, Then um, yeah. now I want to ask. So, how did you? What was your first kind of uh, introduction to comics, or what was your? What's kind of your secret origin?
1: Secret origin, as far as interested in comics or yes. working. In
0: comics? Uh, interested in comics first.
1: Interested in comics. Uh, it was on uh, a bike to heaven, um and they had a spinner rack there, and you know we were. I forget. We were taking some family trip somewhere, and my, you know, the decree was handed down that we should purchase reading materials, and so I got an issue of it was an issue of Amazing Spider Man, an issue of Uncanny X Men, and an issue of Karistar.
0: <laughs> How did that sneak in?
1: It Looked cool. I mean, I didn't, you know, it, <laughs> it was my first time buying comics. I didn't know what anything was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I know it's like, a, well, uh, I'm pretty sure it was one of those toy books. Okay. In, like how they had the GI Joe comic book or the Transformers comic book is one of those based on a toy. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, to this day that, that issue creeped me out. Cause it was one of those, or the issue, sorry, of X-Men creeped me out because it it was about the dire wraiths Oh yeah, and they were like, they were doing some sort of thing with their, I guess it was some sort of proboscis or tongue or something, like hitting people in the head and giving them these crazy visions and mind control and stuff. And I, you know, <laughs> as a young kid processing that, I'm like, what? This is nightmarish. So it was, uh, so yeah, it, it had my attention early on.
0: Absolutely. And then it just kind of blossomed from there?
1: Yeah, it was, uh, it was up and down through. Rest of elementary school, I I got real into Calvin and Hobbes when I was in sixth grade, uh, and that was my favorite thing until probably high school. And then I got into uh, comics right around the era right before Image started. Okay. So, you know, when it was the um, the McFarlane Venom thing and the Eric Larson issues of Spider-Man and, the, you know, all the, a lot of the people that were left to form image mm-hmm. the Jim the X-Men, all those things were kind of like the, where I started collecting. Cause up until then there was a, there was a friend who had like a giant collection and he had everything. Cause you know, when you're 13 or whatever, you don't have a job. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I'd go over there and I'd listen to his public enemy CDs and, uh, you know, read through his collection it's pretty cool
0: for sure i i think a lot of people have the same type of story But you know everyone had kind of that friend who had a lot of comics and you kind of go there mm-hmm. and you you know you're you know you yeah they're usually someone who has a little bit more money maybe and they have more access to this stuff and you kind of spend uh, it all up because i definitely had friends like that where they seem to have every comic and they have all the video games and all this stuff and i'm just like i don't have this
1: yeah yeah there's okay. always that that one person now everybody just has a phone
0: yeah no, like, that's true <laughs>
1: like i mean uh when i went uh at that time i think he was old i think he either had a job or something like that it was like uh a family that our family knew you know mm-hmm. it's just like one of the older siblings and so yeah that that was kind of where it uh that's the i guess the secret origin and then <laughs> in high school we we formed a uh, a comics club oh yeah and it was like <laughs> it was so nerdy Uh, Well, because we met and the whole idea was everybody was trying to, we were going to self publish a book. Okay. That was the whole point of the club and everybody was going to work hard on their comic and finish a comic. And, um, and at the, at that time the prices for publishing even like a black and white thing on just like that gray newsprint was, Mm -hmm. it was prohibitively expensive. And, uh, So we had to do, like, a real short book, and we didn't even... But we didn't start raising the funds until we finished the book, and, uh, yeah, we never got there. (laughs) Because, you know, with homework and everything else, finishing it, that was my first taste of how hard it is to actually go start to finish on a comic. Mm -hmm. Holy moly.
0: What uh, what did you contribute to this self-published... Well, this not-quite-self-published, but this this comic that you guys were putting together?
1: uh, I was inking one story and drawing like penciling another one. And, and I think I was co-writing or plotting or something with somebody. I mean, <laughs> I wish I still had those pages cause I would <laughs> love, I would love to see on a scale of one to 10, how cringe worthy they are. I yeah. can still remember. Do you, th- I mean,
0: do you think it'd be pretty high on the cringe worthy scale?
1: Oh yeah. Like I, <laughs> because it was right around that, um, that anti-hero era, mm. where, where everybody, you know, everybody was adding shoulder pads and <laughs> wielding guns, and you know, there was a lot of vests happening, and we, uh, so that you know, all it was was just, I'm sure, it was just swipes of what was out there.
0: You oh, know, for sure. I mean, and, and then that's natural too. But yeah, it's it's one of those historical things where anyone who kind of came up, starting to draw or starting to put together stuff in that period yeah you're swiping from a lot of the you know big guns, big muscles, big shoulder pads everywhere
1: and and I mean it was an era where people who were uh, newer to the business and had grown up drawing. Things based on drawings, not necessarily on life, or mm-hmm. traditionally educated through art or any of that sort of stuff, were penciling books and making tons of money, and it was all glamorized and everything. And uh, so, when you looked at it, and you're like, "Well, I'm I'm not that good, but you know, I'm I'm almost as good as this person," <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was. And I'm not trying to be insulting to anybody, but it definitely was a different. Because now, if I look through almost any book, you go, oh, that's uh, – like the uh, talent bar is a lot higher now.
0: Mm. Well, I guess also at the time, there's – I mean, because of the whole speculative boom, there were so many books being put out too. Like it felt like there was a, a real right. glut of, you know, trying to get as much talent as or enough people just to, to be on every book that they needed. Um, whereas right. now, I mean, there's still a lot of books being published, don't get me wrong, but yeah, there, it feels like there's a, a different level of quality control.
1: Yeah. I mean, because, you know, multiple factors. You've got people able to find better tutorials and about almost any topic mm-hmm. online, even without schooling. You have more places for people to get noticed. You And frankly, you have the cream of the crop from around the globe. It's not just uh, local like it used to be.
0: Well, that's very true, yeah. Because we definitely have like a European explosion, and like everywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. look at all the different artists that you know—the just the, the big two—and then uh, otherwise, they're they're coming from everywhere, and you get so much more diverse talent as a, as a result.
1: Yeah, totally, and I I think it's great for the for the industry, uh, you know. Because if you now that we're actually kind of getting our. Fingers into pop culture through all the different, uh, all the different TV shows and movies and whatnot. It's it's a much better experience for the casual reader to pick up and look at a book that looks cool on the inside, whereas before, uh, I mean, you know, this isn't true of everything, but there were far fewer books that looked amazing on the inside. It was usually just a great cover, and then.
0: Hmm. That's how they get you. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, back in the day, you'd have a great cover and then you'd have, uh, you know, a a book that was not by that artist and you'd be like, what, Mm -hmm. what's this? Yeah. Well, and and, I mean,
1: I'm talking, you know, years ago, but it was more just, you know, uh, wasn't anything flashy or it was just kind of simple and it told the story, but Mm -hmm. now it, it, I mean, it, it looks a lot closer to what they're experiencing in the theaters and whatnot. True. So that's, I mean, hopefully that's good. I don't know. I'm not a. <laughs> I was I was in the cult early. Yep.
0: Yeah, no. So what what? How do you make the transition to actually being in the comics field? Because that's a a big jump for anyone to make. Being I like these. I like reading these. I like you know being having the comics club and that kind of stuff. How do you actually make that jump into the industry yourself?
1: Um well it was a series of fortunate opportunities that um i was preparing kind of i guess art is just all i wanted to do art music whatever so uh, i couldn't afford to go to art school cuz i wanted to go to art center uh, in pasadena
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that you know especially I mean, it's probably even worse now. But at the time, it was just super expensive, and I so I went to a community college called Palomar that had this one teacher named Jay Schultz, who was pretty cutting edge. He was a working designer, and he would teach also. Okay. Or I don't know. Maybe he moonlit. He did his design stuff at night or whatever. But he would create curricula. Curricula. What's the plural of curriculum?
0: I actually don't know.
1: Curricula. Curriculae. <laughs> uh I just pictured John Cleese in a Centurion thing forcing me to conjugate. Uh, I, but anyway, he uh, so uh, he would he would create classes around new programs, and this is something that so <laughs> while I was going to Palomar, I had a friend that went away to an art school in in San Francisco who had attended the first year of community college with me and and he decided to come back because the art school up there was not only more expensive, but because it, it was kind of, uh, I guess once you get administration and everything, like a big school that's set in its ways, um, it's not as nimble Mm-hmm. for taking up new stuff. And this one teacher at Palomar just, you know, he would just offer classes, you know, he, he offered th- classes in Director, which was the precursor to Flash, but it was pixel-based. And, and you know, it's like computer animation or uh, 3D modeling with a program called Form Z at the time. You know, just he'd learn a program, teach a class on it, and boom. Wow. And, uh, and I mean, it was the I forget how much it was a credit but you know very low cost very reasonable mm-hmm. so anyway I mean I, I went there without aiming for a degree I just wanted to you know I, I took all the classes I could from that from Jay uh, you know other music writing and uh, art classes and then <laughs> working at Toys R Us
0: <laughs> <laughs> Uh Pretty solid uh, part-time job.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> it was funny because it was it was Christmas time. I was a seasonal hire, and this was pre. Um, it was 1995, Christmas '95. So there was. Uh, <laughs> there's no internet ordering. There's no anything. So you'd have people all day. You know, the popular toys would come in on the truck. Mm-hmm. You'd put them out. And they'd be gone immediately. <laughs> and then the whole rest of the few days until the next truck would be answering questions from people about why we don't have any and when they're going to be there. Over and over. Like, where's, I don't remember what they were, lucky ducks or I don't remember what what exactly, there was a few things and it was always like, ugh. Anyway, so it was an interesting time. And uh, at one night I was cleaning up the action figure aisle. I, you know, I called dibs on that aisle just so I could kind of see what's new, keep an eye out for the, uh, who was it? C3PO, Power of the Force figure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> at the time, part of one of the benefits, the hidden benefits of, uh, <laughs> working at Toys R Us was first dibs on the cases.
0: <laughs> well, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Get that,
1: I think it was C3PO was the hard one to get, or Obi-Wan. One of those. But, uh, anyway, so, you know, clean up the action figure aisle and uh, a dude in his 30s, 40s uh, was just struck up a conversation, started asking about, you know, different, like, hey, you know, how, how do those toys do? How do these toys do? And uh, <laughs> I don't know who he was, so I was just giving him the straight thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, uh, what was he asking about? I think it was What Works? figures or something <laughs> and I was like well everybody just buys the the glowy guy and then they leave the rest of the case on the sh- on the pegs and they move real slow so we don't open another case for a while until the next one comes out and they buy that one and leave the rest kind of you know I was just giving him stuff like that Yeah, giving him the deal on it and then he's, he uh, he asked about just chit chat stuff hey what do you do you go to school that kind of stuff and and then he eventually said, Oh hey, well, um why not why don't you give me your information? You know, oh you're going to college for like uh, computer graphics or whatever. Like, hey, we're uh we're hiring some people after the holidays, why don't you give me your information? I'm like, Oh okay. <laughs> and uh and it was the guy it was his name was John Nee, he's the president of Wildstorm. And I mean, I didn't, I just gave him my information that time. So this was what, <laughs> October, I think. And then in December, I was working a really busy, you know, it's chaos at Toys R Us pre-Amazon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now you just <laughs> you just go to everybody's wish list and go click, click, click. All right, done shopping. <laughs> like, back then there were crowds and, oh, my God, the the, the power went out. uh what was it you, you on Thanksgiving that was it. Thanksgiving day the power went out oh god and we had to like uh manually <laughs> we had calculators at the registers and uh <laughs> and we had those those like the credit c- ch- 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 the oh, credit yeah. card. And- oh my goodness <laughs> anyway yeah uh a
0: very different time uh
1: I think about it all the time when I am buying stuff now, how it's a lot of it is you don't even, you hardly make eye contact with the clerk. Both people are just waiting for the card reader to do its work. Yeah. And you're just like, i have a nice day. Yeah. Like, you know, nobody's checking IDs, nobody's writing checks.
0: No, it's well, a lot of it's just less personal. I mean, I remember that whole oh, cool yeah. idea that you used to go to stores and ask people for like advice and help. <laughs> and that's kind of not really a thing anymore. People are kind of like, well, why would I talk to someone?
1: I found some great recommendations, but, you know, from people that worked at music stores and stuff.
0: For sure. Well, that's the big thing that I think people miss, is that as those stores kind of disappear and go away, you don't have that kind of that cultivation, that, that recommendation from someone. Because you can buy something on Amazon, but Amazon doesn't actually know anything about music. It can't be like, you know what? You'd actually really like this sound. Like, I might have... An algorithm like, oh, if you bought this, then you might have bought this, but that's not the same. Right?
1: Yeah, their recommendations are terrible.
0: <laughs> oh, they're really bad. And like, also, if you buy a gift for someone, it doesn't know that. So, like, my wife, for example, bought me uh, years yeah. ago a whole ton of Jonathan Heckman image books, and now every once in a while, it'll email her being like, "Hey, you want the new Jonathan Heckman book?" She's like, "No."
1: That was oh yeah, not, you that was for
0: it. my husband, not for me.
1: Yeah, you have to go and manually. Tell it no, this was a gift. Stop it. And, uh, well, the funniest thing to me is the recommendations go. They'll recommend to me. So, so say I bought some, you know, uh, say I bought a Japanese import Radiohead album or some crazy thing. Mm-hmm. They'll go, hey, do you, do you want the regular version of that album? Like, no. <laughs> hey, you might be interested in the. Um, other regular version of that album like it just rec- keeps recommending me all the different versions of the same thing and you're like no what about the one that had one additional song no what about the Target exclusive no
0: yeah it's not it's exactly like, smart
1: no what and again <laughs> there will be things like buy it again and I'm like why would I need a second copy of a movie
0: <laughs> oh that's funny they seem like easy algorithms to fix but I don't know I'm uh, that's how my brain works
1: all the time is like, just fix that thing. Just fix it. (laughs) (laughs) It's not hard. It's probably hard.
0: So it's, Uh, so it's December now.
1: Oh yeah. Sorry. Sidetracked. So it's December. Uh, Working a busy day on the game wall where uh, I was paid by Nintendo to wear a vest that was a Nintendo vest (laughs) and to recommend people, that they buy the N64 over the PlayStation One. Okay. That was part of my. It, I wasn't supposed to like. It wasn't. It wasn't like I was going to lose money if, you know, my job didn't hinge on people not buying a PlayStation. But I was definitely there, and if people ask questions, <laughs> anyway. So I was there, and <laughs> uh, this the same dude comes in. At the time, I didn't know, but then he goes, "Oh, there you are." I was, you know, I'm glad that you were here. Uh, I lost your information, but here's my card. Call us after the holidays. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, yeah. I, you know, yeah. That that made that was the first inkling that hey, maybe this could work. Because you know, when you when you spend all your time in high school, like one day I'm going to be a comic artist, and then some <laughs> some comic dude comes in and says, hey, we're going to be hiring. Give me your information. You go like, yeah, that's just a polite way to end a conversation. You know, there's nothing that's going to come of it. But mm-hmm. but then when he went there specifically to find me, to give me his card, that was, like, hey, number one, that was really cool. That was cool as hell.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> for sure. That's amazing.
1: Like, why, uh, you know, why, who does that? Uh, and No one. And it also gave me the first hint that, hey, maybe this actually could happen.
0: Yeah. That's yeah. such an incredible story. Like, that's so random. Like... Ha that- <laughs> You know what I mean? Like that's a cool story. Like,
1: oh wait, there's well, if you want, if you want like coincidences that add up, there's okay. more. Oh, well, so, good. okay. Yeah. So I start playing because I'm going to college during the day, working Toys R Us at night. So I would, you know, I'd get up at like whatever. I'm. I, I think I had classes at eight or nine in the morning, Ugh. and then I would get home from work at like one. So there was not, you know, it was really busy at that time. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that's, you know, I still lived with my mom and, you know, that was the answering machine. <laughs> that was the pre-mobile phone days also. Oh, yeah. So it was a game of phone tag where during office hours, I'm at school. And so Wildstorm would call me and then I would return their call and get the message and back and forth and whatnot. And so, um, we played phone tag for a while and I was like, Oh no, I'm going to lose my opportunity because of this. And so I'm working at, uh, the register. Cause I was one of those that had, you know, I worked a lot of different places at Toys R Us. Mm-hmm. And so I was working the register one night and this customer, I'm, you know, I'm serving one customer and the next person I'm like, that person looks so familiar. It's like, well, I don't know. Uh, it, 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 what I'm sure I'm wrong. So bring up the person then the familiar dude walks up and bring up his stuff, bag it all up, you know, chit-chatting, whatever. And then, because this is back in that day, he hands me his credit card because I have to, you know, run it through the machine on my side. And he hands me the credit card. And so now I get to make sure I'm right about it before I say anything to him. And it's James (laughs) Wiley. And I was like, oh, hey, Jim, I'm playing phone tag with Nicole at Wildstorm. Over an interview. I'm sorry to, you know, trouble you with it or whatever. I don't, you know. Yeah. The details of the conversation are lost to the eons. And he goes, Oh, really? I'm like, Yeah, I, you know, because I'm going to school during the hours when she calls. And so he took my number and uh, I had an interview set up within a day or two. Wow.
0: Yeah. That's crazy. This is a very interesting Toys R Us that has all the Wildstorm people coming to it. It
1: was the Miramisa Toys R Us that was closest to where they all lived in La Jolla. Okay. It was the closest Toys R Us to where they lived, so, uh, so they just you know it was the one where uh, because it's local, that's you know convenient, but uh, and also <laughs> that's where you had to go back then. But anyway, uh, and I was working full time, so it was like high percentage of uh, chance that I would run into them. Anyway, I mean, there's there were more coincidences too. Like once I had the interview. The lady on the phone said they use Photoshop weird. And I was like, uh, okay. So during lab time, the teacher I was talking about, the reason I brought him up, this guy, Jay Schultz, uh, he had given us a one day crash course in Photoshop to, to make sprites or, uh, um, what's the name term? It'd just be like pieces of art for the director for the animation thing.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So that's all I knew was a one day, like, here's how this you know, here's how the airbrush works or whatever. And, uh, anyway, so I, so I asked him about it. I'm like, Hey, they say they use it weird. Do you know anything about this? And he goes, Oh yeah, my old lab tech works there now. I think I know how they set up their pages. It's like, okay. So I scanned in some pages of the tick comics I have. Yep. They're black and white. Mm-hmm. And he showed me how to set it up and he would, turns out he was right. So when I went in for my interview, before even reading the paper, I just asked the interviewer, because they were you know, teaching us how to do their weird thing. And I was like, before I get to this, before I read this, let me see if I already know how to do it, because I think I do. And when I showed them that I knew what I was doing, the look on their face said, like, oh, hey, there's a chance at this. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. That's so incredible. They, yeah, it was, it was interesting. So then you had to kind of like live paint a, a face or something. Just to show proficiency in Photoshop,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it turns out that they were hiring for an overflow house because there was Wildstorm effects, and then they made they made this thing for a while called the Tsunami Effect that would take all the books that they couldn't handle, and that was the whole thing. But anyway, so uh, so yeah, we didn't realize that we were kind of a peripheral thing at first. It was just like, oh my god, foot in the door of the industry, like
2: woohoo, <laughs>
1: and. I mean, at the time, it was like <laughs> I was earning five dollars an hour at Toys R Us to walk around and be on my feet and stand in a little thing and you know lift boxes or mm. work the register or something. And uh, <laughs> and then I got paid five dollars fifty cents to sit down all day. I was like, sweet.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Working in comics and got a raise for sure. <laughs> but yeah, they didn't tell us that we were meant to be kind of crappy because obviously that doesn't serve their interests.
0: No, of course not.
1: <laughs> so all of us youngins that were hired there, we were like, Oh, we're going to be, be so good. But I don't know. So that was, that was how I got my foot in the door
0: back in the day. For sure. So, then, like, so when you were younger and you, as you said, you were kind of doing like inks and stuff. So now you're becoming a colorist. Now, how does that like, how did that work as a transition for you? And how did you feel about that? Cause that's different.
1: <laughs> oh, it's way different. I, I mean, well, in computer art versus traditional. And I mean, I'd learned a lot. It, uh, it was through that, that teacher at Palomar that um, my facility with the digital art medium was increasing. But um, so, yeah, I wasn't uncomfortable on a computer. Although they had those early models of Wacom tablets. And, boy, that was something to get used to.
2: <laughs>
1: where, where, like, the whole idea of, you know, drawing on a surface, but it's not on the screen like the modern Cintiq things. It's the more like an Intuos thing. But it was like this big magnet board, and it felt all springy. And I wonder how many levels of sensitivity there were. Probably, like, a 12. <laughs> <laughs> but, anyway. Um, but, yeah, so transitioning to digital was interesting you got an undo one whole undo at the time it's pretty rad
0: yeah well for sure it changes everything right
1: (laughs) yeah it's one more than you had otherwise but back then you could screw it up by accidentally tapping your lasso somewhere or something and now the undo would be like deselect and you're like no (laughs) no
0: Now, yeah. th- those first few books that you were kind of working on, um, mm-hmm. what well, like what was the kind of the, the learning curve in terms of actually kind of making it look good? Which sounds like a simplistic question, but obviously you're no. dealing with new technology.
1: We were, but uh, we were we were dealing with new technology, and it was we were also dealing with it. Even the most experienced of the digital colorists at at that time. Um, compared to what people know now, didn't know anything. Hmm. And, and you know, so it's, it's like relatively new as a medium in general, just like, you know, painting in Photoshop. Because it was originally meant to be, you know, a photo program. And so uh, the, the people that were painting in it, they were... um like they were they taught us what they knew and they and you know it was still awesome to learn from all of them they were still ahead of us but you know looking back now i'm like wow there's a lot that they weren't training us for because i mean when i was very first in we were essentially reproducing marker guides oh wow yeah so like they would have some of them were super fancy like uh, this painter guy joe I don't know how to pronounce the last name, Chiodo, mm-hmm. He,
2: uh,
1: he would use his, you know, designer markers, uh, Prisma colors probably at the time. And, and he would do these fantastic, cause he was a painter. So he's, he would do these amazing color guides. And then it's, it was up to us to kind of like reproduce it digitally. And it wasn't until, I want to say 96 or late 96 or, Somewhere in there, 97, maybe when we abandoned the color guide thing and everybody started to be responsible uh, for the whole bit. And then eventually in there, right around there, ninety-six, 97, you'd have books done by a smaller team because it would be the whole house would work on a book. You know, everybody would have like two or three pages okay. in an issue and then eventually it got to where you'd have a team of two or three doing a book, and then eventually it was down to like one person would have certain books, and that was you know the evolution of all that. And that's why for a long time it, it we were accustomed to. I mean, I don't want to call it disrespect, but it's just a complete lack of cl- consideration in the industry. Nobody paid any attention to color because it would just say Wildstorm effects, and there's like twenty people that work there. Yeah, not, yeah. Well, you know, so. It, 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 it doesn't have any name on who did what, but once it got down to the teams of two or three or individuals doing it, then it uh, it was easier for any any fan to notice who did what because now the name is there. Mm-hmm. So, from, yeah, so, uh,
0: from those kind of early kind of pre cross gen days, are there any particular projects that you are you know proud of the work you put, kind of put on it, or that you thought were shart- starting to show your own personal color style or
1: yeah, there's a few things looking back that I'm not mortified at. <laughs>
0: I guess that's um, a better story, right? It's not 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 necessarily that it's the best, but it's just not the worst.
1: Yeah, I mean, part of I think part of any art, uh, anyone, any sort of artist, you know, in any discipline, thing is being super critical of themselves. So, so yeah, looking back on anything, even I did a couple months ago, I'd be like, ugh, but. <laughs> but especially things from, you know, decade plus ago. But yeah, so Danger Girl, uh I did the first couple issues with on a team of three and then the, then the next couple issues on a team of two and then by the last couple I was the only one doing it. And those hold up alright. Um and when Travis Schrey was doing Wildcats, I was on a team of two that did those. And those hold up all right. Mm-hmm. Like some of the some of the times I got to work with Travis were I mean he did all the heavy lifting, but it, you know, I didn't screw it up that badly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so how does cross come calling them?
1: So uh I ended up Yeah, I don't know if I should get into like the long story version of everything. Like, is that boring? I don't know what, I mean, interview goals-wise, I don't know how much time I should spend on, like, the history, or is that more what you're interested in?
0: Uh, I'm interested in in kind of the, the, the stuff that people don't usually hear about or know. Like, I mean, the work people can kind of look at the pages, but how things happen and why people move around and why. And I think I personally find it interesting because that's the stuff no one ever talks about, or at least, especially at that point, no one really talked about that stuff at all. All right, well. And Crushing has always been something of a big interest to me because, you know, when Crushing came out, I was maybe 15, 16 years old, and I was there kind of at the at the ground floor, and I definitely bought everything Crushing because, first of all, it was a lot of really good books but and it was so many different genres, but also it looked great, it had great scripts, so I was always a huge fan of that company and was sad when their output ended, and obviously there's a lot of, you know, things, the <laughs> reason why it, it kind of went that yeah. way. But, and a lot of the people that worked there have become big, you know, huge names in the industry and have done a lot of work, such as yourself. Like That was the first <laughs> time I ever remember seeing your name on something because I hadn't been buying those other books because I didn't have uh-huh. access to a, a comic book store that was kind of having the Wild Storm books. But suddenly I found a comic book store, and then I'm um, you know, following Crosston through, and I see all these names, and now these names are everywhere. So it's just such an interesting kind of hotbed of talent that ended up exploding after that company kind of imploded.
1: Okay, yeah, okay. Well, then, uh, the story of how I got to cross gen, uh, requires some setup, I guess. Okay. Uh, I mean, I could do the simple, simple version, but if you want the behind the scenes dirt, um, <laughs> like when, so I was working at Wildstorm when DC bought it. And, I haven't worked with DC in years. They were always good to me after Crossgen, It was just Marvel locked me up under contract. So, you know, anything I say about them, you know, has to do with them from, gosh, 18 years ago or whatever, however long ago they bought it. Okay. 16 years ago. So, yeah, I'm just going to preface it that way. But they came in, they had a meeting, they sit us down, they go, we bought you guys because we like what you do here. We like da 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 da, da <laughs> and we just want you to be able to do it the way you do it. And then everyone's all pumped up. All right, yay! And then they left, and then proceeded to change how we did everything.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and yeah, so
0: I mean that's it was just corporations in general, right? I mean, when you purchase another corporation, you always say that you're never going to change anything, and then you probably right. do.
1: Well, so, the the complication there was this. Um, Up until the purchase, the colorists were... Eventually, we knew kind of how important we were and how little we were compensated, especially those of us who were hired in my wave and later. Hmm. Because the people who were hired earlier... We're coming in toward the tail end of the boom, okay. So they, you know, like like I said, I, I started like five fifty an hour. So, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I and getting a raise to seven fifty an hour is pretty big, but that's still not anything. And at the time, they were they said, "Well, we don't really have the money to you know to afford to give every single person here a raise to whatever it is." I don't remember what we were asking for. $10 maybe. I don't know. I don't That just sounds good. Whatever. But <laughs> so what they said is, but there's a lot of freelance opportunities out there. And if you guys feel like taking them, go ahead. we are like, Oh, okay. Just don't, you know, just when you're on the clock here, be, be working. Don't be working on that stuff. No problem. So when DC bought us, the the wages all stayed the same. And then they, Uh, they forbade outside work. okay. Uh, Right. So, uh, by that time, I had been asked the baton of the head of coloring department uh, from Nick Bell. And, so, I did get somewhat of a raise, you know, to take that position, but now I'm salaried. needed the, the boost of the outside work. So, uh, I'm not going to sell out my friend, but one of my friends that I worked with, we both were still doing outside work just under the, you know, under the table. We used pseudonyms and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and there was a day when an issue that we'd done of, I think it was X-Men, you know, somebody was flipping through it in the studio and kind of looked at you know I'm removing all names from this story you know <laughs> kind of flipping through the issue and kind of looked up at, at the two of us and kind of gave us like a ah, like the you know uh, like the de Niro expression where you go ah, hey 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 good. <laughs> you're like ah. and the person sitting next to that person saw the expression looked at the X-men looked at us and kind of went wait a minute and then the next day I was summoned to uh, the boss's office. And he goes, Hey, did you color an issue of X Men? I was like, Yes. And I was fired. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, pretend it didn't happen because I know it wouldn't be too difficult to track it down if you really wanted to. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So, uh,. Brian Haberlin, who at the time ran Avalon Studios, he was our hero. He hired us. He gave us enough work freelance to where we were still in business. You know, because going to suddenly have no job. And I think it was like December. <laughs> it was like coming up on on the holidays. I remember having no job at Christmas one year, and that was that was the year. But uh, so yeah, now now I'm suddenly a freelancer. And, uh, and again, Brian was the one who was, uh, providing all the work. And incidentally, my editor on vampy comics back then ended up, he's like the C he's, he's high up at Marvel now. So we have this history from like <laughs> the late nineties. Anyway, that's handy, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, so, so, I'm working freelance for Brian, and I'm 20, 22, 23 at the time. That era, I was 22, 23. And <laughs> going from an office job to freelance requires a lot of self-discipline.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, at, at that age... I can say that that was not a trait I possessed in abundance. <laughs> yeah, so... So, yeah, when, then CrossGen just... this uh, Brandon Peterson was the art director at CrossGen. They'd send out, you know, boxes, like recruitment boxes, like a box full of comics and a offer letter or whatever. And I got one of those one day. And I'd heard about you know the the murmurs about cross-gen, but because it wasn't the big social media era, I didn't. You know, it was it was weird. It was a lot more like working in a void. Then hmm. I'd just be doing the comics in my living room, like where the computer was set up, <laughs> the giant CRT monitor. Oh yeah, set up, and uh, you know do to do to do, do, do comics comics, and then you just uh, actually you burn them to a CD. And put it, give it to FedEx. Oh my god, yeah, ages ago. But um, but yeah, and you you just send it off, and then you never see the thing. I wouldn't, you know, I wasn't necessarily going to comic stores. I wasn't seeing what other artists were doing or anything. It was kind of like a stagnant time, and uh, I don't know. So. So you'd, you'd, I'd heard things about crushing and whatever. So when I got the box, I just sat there for like weeks,
2: maybe. <laughs> I mean, unopened
1: for like a month, maybe, maybe even. I mean, it was a long time. I just let that sit there. And then I don't think I was. At some point it hit me that I was incapable of maintaining my current momentum you know, like I was having trouble with deadlines and, uh, cause I was living with roommates and they, especially when you're in your early twenties, like freelance is a thing where they'd, they'd be like, Hey dude, come on, let's go and do this or whatever. They wouldn't like respect your work time. They just like, nah, you do it later. Nah, come on, come on. And <laughs> just having to Turn people down all the time, like you're going to give in eventually to one of these things, and it just, you know, uh, like people were giving me credit cards, and I mean, it was just there was all these things that just, I don't, I don't know how personal to get, but like there was a lot of things that were kind of out of control at the time. Okay, because uh, having disposable income in your early twenties, I don't know, it's. Yeah, it all added up to a lot of things. So when I finally opened the box uh, for CrossGen, they offered, it was like a steady salary. They offered, uh, I mean, you work in an office, but it was, you got paid a salary and you had to do one page a day. (laughs) That was like a miracle. Like, you know, it sounded too good to be true. You know, because for the other stuff I was doing, like there was one issue of X-Force I did in 24 hours. It was, uh, there's an issue of, uh, there's a couple other things where you do like, you know, five, six pages or so a day normally just turning them out. So doing one page a day was like,
2: what? <laughs> so,
1: um, yeah, I don't know. So, so I just thought like, Hey, you know, they, they said they'd fly me out for an interview. I figure I'll, um, give it a shot. And it was, I knew like one person in this area sort of, but not really. And that's, I mean, it was enough to where I felt like I don't have zero connections there,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, but yeah. So, you know, I flew out, I, I, I interviewed and they, they're really good at, you know, they were really good at the, um, at the cell. Yeah, and, you know, Whenever you'd come out to interview, they'd, they'd have in groups of like two or three who were interviewing and, you know, they show you a good time and they take you out to these places and they, it's just all, it's very, it was very impressive. So I signed up and I had a month to move. <laughs>
0: And then, you, so now, so then, you're now you're based in Florida. You're working for Crossgen. What? How did you like? They kind of just needed a body on certain books, and they just kind of filled you in, or did you have any kind of discussion on which one would be the best fit for your your coloring style, or how did that work?
1: <laughs> well, again, I'll just give you the. <laughs> I don't want to sell. Out. I mean, I'm sure people could look up the names. I mean. But anyway, I'll, I'll try to be as candid as I can. Um, so they get, they offered me... Uh, the, the offer was for... a To come in specifically to color Sion. Okay. Uh, for Jim Chung. Uh, and they... It was because they were expanding. It was their first... Because they started with four titles, and then they were adding two
0: more? Two or three more? That's, that track, at that time? That track's about right.
1: Yeah, they added Sojourn and... Steve Epting's book,
0: Crux. Crux. Yeah, that's right.
1: So they, um, so Frank Diarmada and I were, uh, interviewing at the same time, at the same day or whatever. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) yeah. Um, Oh, a funny thing about the interview that I, I guess skipped over was the thing I'd heard. And when I told, uh, Brian Haverland that I was coming out for this, he's like, have you read about this guy? He's a maniac.
2: <laughs>
1: and he like, he kind of gave me the heads up on some of the things where he would like insist people shave and, you know, do all these things. Cause at the time, <laughs>
2: uh,
1: I had, uh, long black hair down to the middle of my back <laughs> and, uh, like bright. I mean, like, you know, bright fire engine red streaks in the front and I had like a this crazy beard. Like when I see the pictures of this beard, I'm like, what was I thinking? But it, you know, it's, this it's this thing. It's like, it's almost like a Fu Manchu kind of beard where like, but they besides Tang way down, whatever it is, <laughs> was terrible. But, uh, but yeah. So when I went for the interview, I, I wore a suit cause I was just like, well, it's an interview. I'll wear a suit. And everybody was like, what the heck are you doing in a suit? Meanwhile, Frank walked in in a T-shirt, and so this dude uh, is, comes from the corporate world. The the guy ran cross-gen. so he's used to like software developers, where it's like you got you got to wear this, and you got to have you know your hair like that, and whatever. Yeah. So the two that he interviewed there, up until then, he'd been kind of tyrannical, from what I hear. See, I, this is all secondhand, so I can't verify that about you know how everybody there kind of. <laughs> <laughs> how they appeared, how they behaved, whatever. And then Frank and I, when we were interviewed, uh, both of us broke the mill, the mold of what he thought he would accept. Cause Frank has like tattoo sleeves and, uh, I don't remember if he still had any piercings at the time, but you know, he just walked in in a t-shirt and he usually wore flip-flops. I don't know if he did then, but it seems like <laughs> something he would do. And, you know, and, uh, you know I remember him being kind of like Ugh. <laughs> but but our personalities were you know we were nice people mm-hmm. but we he was one of the types from that it was almost like a caricature or like a, a stereotype where the type of people who were like oh well, all those people are mean or terrible or you know they worship the devil or whatever so when they uh, so when he met us, and we were actually nice, normal people with just some varying surface features, he—he uh, he, it seemed to uh, open his mind up a little bit, which was nice. But um, <laughs> but yeah, anyway. So so uh, Frank and I were hired there at the same time to take over for these books. Uh, the guy that was working for Jim moved over to Sojourn. Because I think Jim kind of drove him crazy. (laughs) How so? Uh, Jim has a way of, he's very soft-spoken. But he would uh, look over his shoulder, and I I believe the specific question was, so that looks good to you then. He's British. (laughs) uh, And and it would drive this dude crazy, because he'd be like, what do you mean by that? What's wrong with it? <laughs> you know, because he's—I think it was his first gig or his first gig where he wasn't an assistant, okay. something like that. Mm-hmm. Like he was a little nervous about it. Okay. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> when Jim said the same thing to me, I'm like, "Yep, yeah, looks great."
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, That's you, can, funny. you can get all—you can get all subtle with your tone, all you want, like. Unless you want me to change something, speak up. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so I was I was uh, recruited to work on Scion specifically.
0: Okay, no, so I mean that was a, a a great looking book. Obviously, I mean Jim's artwork was great, but the colors always set that book apart for me, and especially your colors because um, that that couldn't have been easy with the blades. I mean, and the lighting effects you guys used uh, really were something special and very different than mo- most of what you were getting elsewhere.
1: Yeah, we, um, we really set out when I first got there, I was obsessed with trying to make things a little more realistic, I guess, or something like cinematic. Mm-hmm. And I I really had to push myself and I still, you know, there's tons of stuff there where I look at it and I'm like, Ooh, but, um, but I can see how much my work changed almost immediately. Because I came in and I was the first person who they'd hired for color that already kind of had. Uh, well, I guess Frank also. Like the two of us were the, were people who had already done a lot of outside work. The other people they had all kind of started with the company, or or it was their it was a their first made it was a more major gig than they had previously, whereas. Frank and I I think had been working marble and stuff. So so there was a lot of pressure to <laughs> people are coming over, you know, asking questions and checking out what you would do. Like that was one of the crazy things about that place is you finish a page, you tack it to the wall. Everybody's there in the same place checking out what you did. Wow. So if you did a something a lot of peer pressure in that. You know? You don't, you don't wanna Everybody ups their game, they play you know, they go strong because you don't want to put a weak page up. everybody walks around and go check around out,
0: well, especially as you said, the, coming from basically working in a vacuum to suddenly yeah. in a fishbowl,
1: yeah, but it was like it was like art camp for three years or whatever. it was I mean. I learned so much in such a short time because it wasn't like you even have other people just of your discipline there. Like after hours, you know, I was in some band and I was working on a flyer and I would ask Jim like, Hey, you know, what do you think of this layout? And he'd be like, Oh, well you might want to, you know, do this or that. Or, you know, uh, gosh, you could ask questions to anybody and everybody was very open and, you know, you'd, See all sorts of interesting techniques, and you'd see uh, you get to borrow fantastic books from all these crazy good bookshelves that all these guys have, and
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, it was <laughs> it, uh, it was good. To, it was a good time while well, it lasted. I mean, could have ended better, but but yeah, I, I mean, everybody there was pushing themselves to do their best and to learn all they could. It was great.
0: Well, how did you? Um, how did the transition over from working on Scion to actually working on Sojourn kind of come about? Because, I mean, that's a different book, different aesthetic. Um, what kind of prompted that move?
1: Uh, at the time, I, I believe that's when the one guy quit the job was stressing him out, just the environment. He was, I don't think he was, his personality type, I don't think flourished in a In a situation where the whole office is kind of like, could be perceived as keeping an eye on you. Hmm. Um, so once he quit, I think the boss moved me over. I don't remember for sure. But I think he moved me over to work on Greg on Sojourn. And so then they, uh, yeah. And that's when they hired Jason Keith, who's now, you know, still comics famous. Does a lot of work with like, uh, Frank Cho or Mm -hmm. he's done Bagley. He's done, he's done a lot of stuff. But, um, anyway, so, um, so yeah, they, that offered the opportunity to try and, you know, learn a lot more about realism because Greg's a lot more into realism than uh, Jim. Jim's a lot more into uh, dynamic, I guess dynamics just in general, mm-hmm. you know, be they textures or layouts or everything. He's just into like pushing the dynamics of things and Greg's more into pushing the, the realism, I guess. So it was was cool though, because now I got to learn a whole, you know, a whole new way of doing things, and the 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 joy of doing a fantasy book was. But I mean, Cyan already had this also, but uh, as opposed to, you know, I've been I've worked on a lot of Spider-Man books, and it's just like, you know, New York City, 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 (laughs) whereas uh, doing these fantasy books, it's like. We have a five issue arc in the desert. Now we're going into catacombs. Now we're going up to the like sky people in the mountains. Now mm-hmm. we're going to the snow. Now we're going to the ocean. Like, you know, they would voyage around. They would journey. If only there was a good word for that.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, but you know, it, it, it was cool getting to do different environments. Is mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty fun.
0: Internally at the time, which book would have been considered kind of a a better seller or a bigger book for the company?
1: I mean, Sojourn was one of the higher ones. Like at the time, I think
2: Sojourn and
1: Scion were both up there. Uh, What was the other big one? I think Ruse, the one that uh, which guys did, was a big seller yeah uh, I mean for a while they had like they were trying to work movie deals and stuff, so I just remember the the ones the movie people really liked Meridian and they really liked way of the rat, I think,
0: yeah, I think I remember hearing like reading a lot about that i mean. The the comic press being what it was and um, the kind of early days of kind of the Internet reporting on this kind of stuff. But it definitely felt like, yeah, you're always hearing that kind of stuff. And to be honest, I can see why. I mean, those properties um, seem that they could work as movies uh, pretty easily.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't know that they set out because um, when they were first starting the company, that was right around when the first – X-Men movie came out, which was the one that changed the game where comic movies were kind of legit. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't think the company, these properties as a like, ah, we're going to make movies with these. But as time went on, it became clear that, you know, I mean, we had like a sci-fi sort of fantasy. We had like the dragons and elves kind of, you know, old school fantasy. We had, uh, like a detective sort of like an you know like a Victorian mystery kind of book, and we had a you know a kung fu comic and a like it, it we had you know a book to cover every genre, so it made sense that some of them would play right into the hands of the cinema. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So when CrossGen goes down, and we won't rehash that because that's unnecessary, but a hot, cross-gen does go away. And then suddenly you're, I mean, if you look at kind of your resume, suddenly you're all over the place. Like you're doing books for both DC and Marvel. And it seems like suddenly did um, cross-gen, your time with CrossGen, just kind of raise your profile? And suddenly you and a lot of other people were suddenly available. And they're like, well, let's get these hot guys from this company?
1: Yes. We got cherry-picked uh there was i mean um i was doing mostly covers with these i mean for a while cross uh i mean i'm not gonna rehash the whole like downfall thing but there was an era where we would get like half paychecks and stuff Hmm. but we were allowed to use the company equipment to do outside work after hours if we wanted to oh wow and well i mean that's very quote-unquote generous when they're not paying us, but...
0: True, um, but it's still not what you necessarily expect. I mean, they didn't have to do that. I mean, that, that being said, it'd be nice if they paid you full wage, right. but...
1: Right. Well, it's pretty much... It was that or everybody was going to leave, you know? mm mm-hmm. um, But, yeah, so it was mostly... Uh, I was working, doing covers with... Mostly with Jim Chung and Craig Land. At the time, we were doing covers for kind of like Marvel and DC at the time. And then... Uh, and then when the everything really hit the fan um, there was a dinner Joe Quesada came down and threw a dinner and invited a bunch of us out and he just said like if you're here at this table I have work for you and that was that so you know when it went down I was kind of brought into the fold and I think my first book there was Ultimate X Men with Brandon Peterson.
2: Yep, I think,
1: and (laughs) with Nicolo when he was an assistant editor, (laughs) and uh, and then you know from there it just kind of they uh, they gave me a bunch of work for the next year, and then I think a year like one year into it they gave me a contract, so then I was no longer doing D.C. stuff, and I've been under contract ever since.
0: And what's it like kind of getting that exclusive contract? What does that kind of... Well, like, how does that feel? Because, I mean, that doesn't happen for everyone, although I guess in the mid-2000s there definitely was kind of a rush of people getting exclusives, and it felt like every year yeah. around Comic-Con time you'd, they'd have a new announcement on new people signing exclusives, which it feels like it's a lot less of a big deal now, or it's less talked about. It,
1: um as a freelancer i mean i i understand now i mean i you know just because i've had the contracts long enough to kind of get to understand the downsides a little bit but at first it was kind of a no-brainer because you know i'm 3000 miles from where i originated and i didn't you know the uh the end of CrossGen wasn't very profitable, let's say, <laughs> monetarily. So, you know, it was one of those where you're kind of rudderless and you're looking around. So when they go, hey, we want to guarantee you X amount of books a year at X amount of money, I'm like, okay, done. <laughs> you know, I don't want – because, you know, page rates are notorious for always going down and uh, – you know, and or like people will pull books or whatever. I don't know. It just, it seemed to, it seemed to make sense, you know, some sort of security, something to cling to.
0: For sure. Now I got to ask as well, like, so not that far into, I guess, the contract period. um, What is it about you and Jim Chung that kind of works so well and that we keep seeing you guys work together throughout the years? I mean, Young Avengers looked fantastic.
1: Well, thanks. Um, the a lot of that was the rapport that I had with people at, um, at CrossGen. You know, Jim and I, especially from the Scion days, when we were, because both of us were the type who were night owls and perfectionists, so we'd be there working all day, and then we'd hang out at night. Like this whole studio is empty except for like myself, Jim, maybe you know another three or four people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, but I mean, definitely like the whole wrist bar area was empty and, you know, just chit chat, uh, you know, you, you end up <laughs> playing enough bouts of soul caliber against each other on breaks, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: but
1: you, uh, I don't know. Uh, so, so, I mean, we really got like, a a report, like a trust kind of thing going where, he feels comfortable if he wants anything changed and I feel comfortable kind of just going for a direction kind of, you know, I know, I know enough about his peeves or his, uh, or his desires over the years, you know, that now it, it, it's pretty automatic.
0: Okay. Yeah. Cause I mean, I mean your work, your work over his stuff especially it, it when I think of his artwork it's with your colors I mean like he's obviously done a lot of work over the years but for some reason like when when it's you coloring his work I think it's, it's it seems to be at its best and it, I think it's just your colors pop in such a, a vibrant way um, which really just makes it such a pleasure to read that uh, it always feels fresh and new
1: oh thanks the um, yeah it, it, the one that I still, uh, in my opinion, holds up the best is the Children's Crusade. Like most of that, I still really like how it turned out. I mean, other, you know, some of the older ones, because I think Jim Jim uses a lot of uh, a lot of ink on his pages, a lot of dark stuff. It makes it again very dynamic layout wise, and um. Hmm you know, his silhouettes and his overlap. Like he's, he's, he's super good. His textures, all this stuff. But it was, it wasn't until I started, um, I was working over Terry Dodson on X-Men at some point, And Terry requested that I, um, always hold the line art to a color on skin. And I was like, okay. But then once I started doing that, I kind of, uh, I, I don't know. I, I really became enamored with that whole thing and uh, I'd been studying a lot more painters so having a flat black layer of drawing over top of essentially a painting started to feel more and more un- unnatural. So uh, so yeah, around the, the era of Children's Crusade I was doing a lot more color holding of the the line work and stuff and uh, and that's where I I don't know. I feel like it started to gel better. It's like during the, what else? The Secret Warriors covers was another thing that happened during that era. Oh yeah. And those I, I really like how some of those turned out.
0: Those are gorgeous covers.
1: <laughs> I won't tell you which ones I like, but there are <laughs> a few there that are super good. The rest are kind of... Mm-hmm.
0: I have a question. Um, yeah. When you were doing this, uh, Children's Crusade, there was um, a particular issue where you had, I guess, them going through the time stream, and I guess they were encased kind of in red energy. Um, I was just curious, yeah. like, how you kind of got that look or how you kind of worked on that uh, to develop that. It was just such a great hue. Like, there's something about those pages that I really liked um, that it really conveyed the idea, like, kind of what they were doing just in the colors. I don't know if that makes sense, but um just intrigued by how you kind of decided on that look.
1: Um it was uh I don't remember why we chose red. I think it might be because it was an Iron Lad thing and his powers were red. Mhm. Uh
0: That makes sense actually because there I mean you use uh, there's a lot of great use of red en- uh, red energy beams in that's in that entire book.
1: <laughs> oh, great. Uh, that's nice to hear. Like, the uh, but, really, pops. but yeah, the the prism thing, um, yeah, I think we settled on red for that, but usually, no matter which color you settle on, just strongly theming things so that they are more easily identified or associated with certain things helps, you know, no matter it. Because it doesn't really matter usually which color you pick unless you're, you know, getting into mood lighting or something, I guess, but I mean, For like a superpower, it's like, mm, like magic, for example, the, uh, her sword sometimes is like a a hot white, yellow, flamey kind of thing. And sometimes it's a bright blue white kind of, you know, she just alternates back and forth and it's no real rhyme or reason. So it's, you know, it doesn't seem to really matter what that is, as long as it serves the image Mm -hmm. or the story.
0: Which book do you think, I mean... It's of work, though. Yeah, no, I think it's fantastic. Which of, I mean, obviously you've done a lot of work over the years, but uh, are there any particular books that you think are really kind of stand out as being like a, a different approach to the colors that you tried that worked out either for better or for worse?
1: Uh, every now and then I got to do something different. Uh, for the most part, though, and this kind of ties into... Um, how you were talking about us, you know, uh, being plucked out of there from, from cross-gen or whatever is for the most part, I was put on books to kind of take the cross-gen approach on them. You know, they would pair me up with Jim or Greg or, you know, uh, other people that I'd worked with there. And I don't know, it's like they wanted me to take that approach all the time, but every now and then I got to do some fun issues like, uh, there was a section in mighty avengers where uh where it's like a flashback and i was supposed to color it like it was an a 70s comic or an 80s comic something like that (laughs) and that was fun just like a super limited palette flat colors um
0: was that with the sentry
1: I think so. Yeah.
0: Because if that's what I'm thinking of, those colors were amazing. I don't even know how you achieved that look. Like I remember if it's the one I'm thinking of, and I think it was mighty Avengers where they had a bit of a time travel story. Um, if it's It's what I'm thinking of, those were, those were amazing colors. I remember being absolutely blown away. I think it's Dr. Doom.
1: Let's see. Do I still have
0: that? That sounds, that sounds right. Yeah. Dr. Doom in the past.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and that, I, you know, I mean, I've seen. What's tough about this is, like, at the time, I was like, "Yay, this is really fun," and I think I'm doing a good job. And then since then, there's been a couple books that have done. I mean, I don't even know how many years ago that was, but but since then, there's a couple books that have done a retro look, like Deadpool, I think, where it it they do a way better job, and I'm like, Ugh. but uh, <laughs> but but yeah, I um, I looked up. <laughs> I'm such a preparation nerd. When I get scripts and things, I looked up um, what the color palette was that was available to them in the 70s. Okay. I think there were 64 colors. And so I just made a palette of that and, you know, just worked with the <laughs> the, uh, the pencil and Photoshop. And so it was all 100% just like, and the bucket and pencil and. And then I put kind of like a, if I remember correctly, I think I'd yellowed the pages a little bit. So there's no, nothing total white.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's right. And,
1: and, and ran a, ran the filter to separate the, the colors into the dots that so that it looks like the older comics. But that's, that was pretty much it. Just, you know, using that super limited palette. It was fun. For sure. What sure. was it like uh,
0: getting to be a colorist on a, on a Star Wars story?
1: Oh, <laughs> oh my God. That, it was super intimidating, but... I mean, <laughs> it really unleashed my nitpicky perfectionism. Because... <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh my God, I accumulated so much reference. I mean, I already had a bunch of Star Wars books anyway, but I think I doubled the amount. I have probably like an entire half a bookshelf now of making of Star Wars books and costumes and all these things so that we'd get all the details right. Mm -hmm. Because Stuart was real into into accuracy. And I mean, (laughs) like he's so into accuracy. There's things where he's like, yeah, I think that's from, I think you did a, an Empire Strikes Back version of the, the, was it, the E-44 blaster, and I'm doing the New Hope version. I was like, oh, oh okay.
2: <laughs> I mean. So
1: you, like he, he took it pretty seriously. Oh, yeah, but I love Stuart. I love his work. I love, like, you know, tons of integrity in that guy, tons of, uh, I relate to his perfectionistic streak and uh and yeah so it was it was a lot of pressure but I wouldn't have traded it for anything I I mean it I definitely didn't do it I slowed I slowed down a lot. <laughs> so would,
0: what do you think it was would, the, the most challenging element of of doing Star Wars?
1: Um I'd say setting up different environmental palettes kind of Okay. Because when you, one of the, one of the things I always try to do anyway is uh, make it so when the book jumps from scene to scene, the reader immediately knows we're not in the same room. Sometimes, you, I mean, some some books you flip through and I, ha- I happen to know, you know, on some of them, the reason that people aren't putting that much time in is because the page rates are abysmal. Mm. (laughs) So, but you know, as you go scene to scene, you don't necessarily, because it's just like skin looks like skin, whatever looks like, whatever. And you know, again, that's a little outdated because it's been a while since I read a lot of stuff. But anyway, um, I don't want it to be confusing at all. I don't want you to flip through and have at least even one page where you're like, wait, who are, where are we? Like I want it to feel different every time. Mm -hmm. And, Star Wars, particularly, when you watch the films, when you jump around, you know, you're jumping all over the galaxy, so they're really good at making it very clear which planet you're on. Just, boom, they cut to it, and it's, you know, it's like, it's obviously Tatooine, everything's warm, or, you know, or or you're on Naboo, everything's lush, or it's, you know, I mean, it's just, it's very obvious. So... Um, the tough thing was setting up the planets to look immediately different. But I mean, when you when you jump between from planet to planet to planet to planet, eventually it's like, oh, how do I make this stand out? Like, how do I make this look different? But yeah. And not getting lost in the details, too. Hmm, I, guess like that,
0: the I guess it's far too easy to do, right?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> the editors, a lot of times, they'll... They when they're we're nearing a deadline, they'll be like and, and zoom out. <laughs> <laughs> like, <We're>, I try.
0: <laughs> Where when when doing Star Wars is there anything in particular that you're kind of proud of from a coloring perspective that you kind of were able to to add or imbue the, the book with?
1: Um I think I think I did an okay job on, on like I mean it I think it looks nice. You know, it's one of those where I um, Stewart did most of the heavy lifting in that. Well, I mean, and Wade and you know everybody, but like wh- when I got to it is is like I could add a couple things here or there, but for the most part, it was again just like trying to make sure that everything flowed and was noticeably different. But yeah, I don't have a I don't have a trade of that in front of me <laughs> to flip through and go like, Ugh,
0: well, listen, you know, what <laughs> one
1: thing I there's th- one or two scenes in there. Where yeah, one I th- like the covers. I thought the covers turned out really well.
0: Oh yeah. Um, one thing I was I liked about, um, and I, I don't know if it was maybe in the original line work or not, or if it was more of a, a, a color edition by you, is um, when you have the sequence of uh, now I forget. What the, the guy's name was, but the, when Luke is having his, his lightsaber fight against uh, that other guy, again, um, forgetting who it was, um, when you have the motion, you have a kind of a blurred effect on the lightsaber, so it's not just this the single kind of blade, but it looks like it's actually in motion, and that's yeah. a, a really interesting touch that really adds a cinematic quality to it.
1: Oh, that's all, Stuart. Like, oh, really? um, yeah. Well, if you if you look at still frames of uh, film footage mm-hmm. that's actually what happens to the lightsabers is they just turn into like a wedge shape mm-hmm. uh, because it, they're moving so quickly and they're so bright that it just is a flat just like, whoop, like a white shape almost and, uh, and the fact that he noticed and translated that so effectively to the panels is you know I mean for me it was just you know it's white it's going to have a colored border <laughs> 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 to show what color lightsaber it is I mean, one of the coolest things is, I mean, spoiler alert, if you haven't read that story arc, I'll give somebody a second to, like, stop their thing. And, okay, Um, (laughs) is when uh, Chewbacca and Han and everybody gets lightsabers at the end of that story arc. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was frankly disappointed that not more people were like, oh, my God, this (laughs) is the coolest Cause that's all I said the whole time I was coloring that I was like oh of oh, lightsabers oh my god
0: <laughs> it was a very cool sequence I'll, I'll tell you that right now
1: yeah I mean it's corny like you know it's corny in that um,
0: it's a good kind of corny
1: yeah well I mean it makes sense because the dude was collecting all these lightsabers and whatnot so it you know it, it worked in the story and it, and it definitely gave one of those moments that as a Star Wars fan you go like, what? Like it's a, it's almost like a what if. Hmm. Yes, uh, it is. A what if story come to life and you get to live out your um, non-Jedi lightsaber wielding fantasies.
0: <laughs> what was it like working with uh, McNiven on The Death of Wolverine?
1: Uh, it was labor intensive but rewarding in that to this day, I think when I go to conventions and stuff, I think I've signed more of those Death
0: of Wolverine issues than I've signed of anything else. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, people... Well, I think... Because it's a four-issue series, so it was short. Mm-hmm.
1: And it was... The, the covers were, you know... <laughs> they were kind of a 90s throwback I think they were like chromium or you know they were like glossy and yep. shiny and and uh, so they stood out on the racks but it was also a pretty legit story as far as killing a main character like that and uh, I don't know a lot of people seem to be into it so yeah I, I mean it was super rewarding but I love working with Steve he's another guy that I, I knew from Crush and and you, got, uh, you guys are everywhere. I tell you, you yeah, I, yeah, seriously though. I mean, seriously, but he, um, like, he trusts me a lot. And again, we're we're on one of those. I think it's there's definitely some sort of bonding that happens when you go through a thing like Crossgen, where it's so many highs and lows and stuff together, um, that you know, when you've already got that sort of rapport going and then when you start working together, it's like we communicate on a level that I don't necessarily do as easily with newer people. It takes me a long time to work up to a thing. Whereas Steve, if he wants something fixed, he does. Cause some people feel bad about, Oh, well I hate to bother you about this or, or they'll just not say things. And then they, you find out later they were like kind of about it. I, I much prefer the, the upfront, like we want this final product to be its best, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so, so I'm really comfortable working with Steve. He's, um, you know, very skilled and he, he trusts me to do my thing. And, you know, and I trust that he will let me know if I overstep or if I take a wrong turn or whatever. And, you know, I'll ask him ahead of time if I'm like, uh, I don't really know what to do with this, you know? I was thinking this and then yeah shoot out some input but yeah scheduling conflict got me off of inhumans right between 0 and 1 Oh really? And then they haven't paired me back. Yeah, yeah. I forget what, you know. It's a cuz if you're a penciler or a or, or I guess primarily penciler, you know, you're not doing more than like one book at a time office Mm -hmm. but color is like you know i'll have a book in three different offices or two different offices at a time and scheduling wise sometimes they just can't make it work between all of them and you know like the ship dates will match too closely or the schedules whatever Mm -hmm. so it'll be like uh they'll just take whichever one is i guess lowest priority or i'm lowest priority i don't know how they you know Something about it,
2: yeah.
1: Priority, you know, when they choose which one to remove from my schedule. So, yeah, they haven't they haven't paired us back up. Same with Jim. Like I just saw, <laughs> I saw astonishing X Men pages online, and they were already colored. <laughs> I didn't even know he was working on X Men because we used to, you know, be in semi regular communication, and. Uh, and since he he moved and we haven't I haven't done as many conventions we haven't seen each other much, and then I see you know pages coming out that are colored and I was like oh I didn't even know he was working on X Men, <laughs> 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 but apparently they're uh, you know if Richard he's doing it but he's great so and he's doing a good job on it for sure but uh, but yeah it's it's just weird when I didn't even know they were doing it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, oh, well. There, there, there's a lot of stuff going on, right? And you have your own books to work on, and oh, for sure, easy to keep track, easy to lose track of this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, that's the but the one thing that <laughs> is uh, it, it was usually easy to keep dudes like Jim and Steve uh, as partners because their yearly output kind of. Um, leaves gaps in the schedule kind of for each other in okay. a weird way mm-hmm. which you know and that's I mean it takes time to do the sort of craftsmanship that they do but um, but yeah it was, it was helpful so now when I'm on people that are all you know uh, and that's not to say that people can't be quick I don't know I always feel like I'm going to put my foot in my mouth at some point but <laughs> um, but the people that I'm working with now uh, they're all you know so regular with their output that um, it's hard to fit anything else in there. Gotcha.
0: Now, speaking of, I guess, one of the, one of the current artists you're working with. So you've been working with David Marquez for a while now on a, on a variety of different books. How is how has your collaboration kind of matured?
1: Uh, well, I mean, the, See, that's, that's evolved funny, maybe. that's not,
0: maybe not matured but maybe evolved
1: yeah uh, it's definitely changed that's definitely uh, the the difference with him is most of the people that I've worked with that long term I already knew personally hmm. uh, you know because we pretty much either had a history from CrossGen or wildstorm or something but um, but yeah so the era of Sarah Kelly and Dave Marquez and stuff those are the first people that, uh, well, I guess Bagley I worked with for a long time without. But uh, I mean, he was so established, though. He's like such a vet. Like, I, I feel like I. Sarah only did a couple issues before I started working with her, and same with David, uh, at least at Marvel. So it's almost like I started with, or they started with me working with them gotcha almost so so like you know specifically with david uh we the way that we were working together kind of hit its peak i guess at civil war 2 with the approach that he was using he had kind of like a clean um you know his his line work especially you know if you go look at civil war it's very clean it's detailed but it's sort of open, and uh, there was a couple times in – I don't remember what the title is. It was a Miles Morales book, but I don't remember if it was Miles Morales, The Ultimate Spider-Man, <laughs> or Ultimate Spider-Man Miles. Like, you know, they changed it a few times. Yeah. But there's a couple issues in there that – and this kind of goes to a previous question that we were – Trying different things and he did this darker style you know where it's a lot scratchier heavier blacks and all this stuff and um and i did a lot more of a graphic color approach on it and that was really fun and it turns out that that ended up being sort of the template for what we're doing on avengers or uh, not sorry defenders now okay um okay where after civil war two, i think both of us were pretty burned out on that style uh, cause I mean, <laughs> it was, I don't remember eight issues, but two of them were oversized.
0: Something like that.
1: Something. I mean, there's a lot of pages of a lot of characters. <laughs> <laughs> and after one, well, and, and it was a similar style that we'd done to, you know, Iron Man and some the things before, but anyway, so, uh, so we wanted to shift gears. Well, I mean, it was their idea first, Brian and Brian and David on defenders. And so now we're doing a whole, like a whole different thing. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's kind of a neon noir kind of, uh, some of the examples are like the movie drive or the movie, the John wick movies or that kind of thing yeah. where it's, it's very heavily shadowed, but very strong colors as the light sources usually and uh, and it's I mean it's fun I love I love pushing it a little bit you know trying something to make it like grittier darker and more textury and you know not not just doing the same stuff because I I mean even Civil War also felt like pushing that style that I began at CrossGen and kind of like again, blowing that out to where I just, I'm like, uh, I don't know. I don't feel like doing that. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's time intensive and kind of over rendery. Mm-hmm. How, how do
0: you, how do you think you keep getting tagged for some of these, these bigger books? Cause I mean, you've done a lot of the kind of the, the big summer crossovers, the big events. Um, obviously you did clone conspiracy as well. Like you're kind of getting tapped for a lot of these, these big books. Why do they keep coming to you? I mean, obviously your colors are great, but, like, what is it, what is it about you think your style that uh, really kind of works with these bigger projects?
1: I don't know. Maybe I uh, – am, am I a lowest common denominator? <laughs> mass appeal, which is a nice way of saying basic. <laughs> no, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I would never no, I say that, ever.
1: I, You know, uh, I mean, I, I always try to make everything – look as impactful or poppy as it can. And I guess that it's kind of, you know, peak comic books style, Not because a lot of the modern stuff that is, um, that's very uh, critically adored is a lot more artsy. And, you know, uh, the stuff that I was doing was a little more, I don't know, pushing pushing the the more comic booky looking stuff. Mm-hmm. Quite a while. And I mean, you know, that's what I was doing. So it's not I I feel no shame. It's what I was going for.
0: <laughs> well for sure. But, well, uh, I mean I, I I've always thought and I've I've said it numerous times in this on the interview so far is that, you know, your artwork has always just popped. It's had such vitality to the colors. They feel so vibrant. Which I mean you don't get that everywhere and it really sets your artwork apart. So I generally do feel that, as I said, like when I, I'm used to you doing a lot of work over Jim Chung. So I feel like when I see a Jim Chung book and it's by you, it just feels like that's the natural fit for his style because I'm, I've become so accustomed to this, this perfect representation of the colors on his art. And I've seen other colors do his work, but it's not the same. It's, it's not, you guys are a special team.
1: Uh, thanks for for the compliment but uh, yeah I think well one thing that I one advantage I have over anybody else who who you know who takes one of my partners from me no I, I was waving <laughs> my fist in the air like sarcastically but um, uh, is that I you know I have uh, what ten twelve years of oh gosh start one when I, yeah so yeah two thousand one so gosh. 15, 16 years of, uh, you know, collaboration experience with them, <laughs> so I've got I've got a little bit of an advantage there, and <laughs> kind of being able to, you know, nobody know wants. So I mean, uh, I mean, I still think that they do some really good and interesting stuff over them. They just make different choices, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's it's definitely an interesting thing to see frequent collaborators when they work with other people Mm -hmm. because you get so used to always seeing their work and your work together that when you see someone else's spin on it, it's like, you you know, you're looking at things going like, Oh, that's an interesting take and that's oh I like what they did there, I like what they did there. Like maybe I wouldn't have done that thing there, but in general, you know, this is uh like a good spin and um sometimes there are things where you notice a thing here or there where you're like, oh (laughs) I may adopt that.
0: Well, along that line, which what are the colors do you think have informed your work or been more of an influence on subtle changes that you might have brought into your own designs?
1: Oh goodness, Um, pretty much since the beginning. uh, I mean, that's that's how I've learned from like any of the art stuff is anything I see somebody doing that catches my eye, I immediately go like, mental note, you know, there's, there's a, there's a good solution for that artistic problem. And, you know, you just file it in the cabinet and eventually, I think the quote is Pablo Picasso, where he said something about, uh, and I, uh, my paraphrase is going to lose it, but it said something about like, you know, good artists or mediocre artists, borrow, great artists steal, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like that. And at first I didn't catch the nuance that borrowing means you're not, you're using something that isn't yours and stealing means you've made it your own. You've taken ownership of this thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think the core of that quote is when you notice things in others, you put them in, And add them to your own style in a way that it just incorporates, and it's now yours. You know, you've personalized it and whatnot, but it just becomes another one of the things in the in the you know filing cabinet of your artistic solutions. And eventually, you know, when people are starting out, you'll usually see a heavier influence of a particular person here or there, like. And then as they, you know, as their work matures and they feel more comfortable and their influences vary, you know, their work kind of becomes their own, I think, over time. So, um, that's, I am rambling so much on this podcast. (laughs) Um, so like, so let me ramble some more. The, uh, so yeah, when you ask for influences, it's pretty much like everyone that started at Wildstorm with me. Through, you know, there's stuff all the time I see where I'm like, oh, look at that. Oh, I really like this. I mean, I never stop trying to learn things or pick up new tidbits. I mean, Crossgen was definitely a peak as far as uh, amount of different new information you could get on a daily basis, just because you're around, you know, 30 or 40 other artists <laughs> in the same building. I mean, you know, you could learn so much so fast from all those people so quickly from all those people. And, but still, whenever I look through books or, you know, see things online, you know, even just previews or whatever, there are things here and there that I'm like, oh, <laughs> like what you did here. What, what, uh, almost, what, uh...
0: Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, what, what kind of uh, projects are kind of things that you'd love to get to do at some point or a genre or a character um, that you haven't really been able to dabble with or try that you really kind of have on your artistic bucket list?
1: I would love to do a book
0: like Hellboy. Okay. Or a book like,
1: or I would love to illustrate a book of The Muppets.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Well, I mean, because they have Muppet comics, you know that sort of thing. Oh, sure. uh, I they're they're just a favorite of mine. I mean, it, as far as if you go artistic bucket list, like you know things I want to do before you know the the cold specter of death appears on my doorstep. Like I is you know I would love to uh, color something very gothic and whatever, like Hellboy or you know, or illustrate something kind of fun and whimsical, like something, I mean, things like how Scotty Young does, uh, I hate fairyland, that kind of fun. Okay. Just like illustration style.
0: Will we ever get, will we ever get to see you work, uh, out of the kind of coloring realm and actually doing pencils or inks?
1: Um, I've done two variant covers. um, one was an amazing Spider-Man issue. Uh-huh. I think it was 19.1. I mean, it was a lot, like, it was a 0.1 variant, you know, <laughs> it wasn't like they were like, <laughs> premier variant cover, but, uh, I did a, a Spider-Man variant. And then I did, uh, I did a poster with again, another one of my former cross-gen collaborator, Rob Schwager. He's, a uh, he has a thing called tiny bird press, Okay. That does, he does silkscreen posters, like, you know, rock poster style or whatever, Uh, you know, silkscreen poster style, like Mondo tees kind of things. He does a bunch on his own and he uh, was after me to design a a silkscreen thing for him to produce and then we could sell them. And uh, I did one of, it's like Rocket Raccoon in a, a hot rod, like a, a group hot rod oh, nice. sort of wrapping style.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, and I had the poster with me at the New York con and the editor of rock a raccoon comic. She goes, uh, Hey, send me a JPEG of that. And I was like, okay. And then she's like, Hey, can we, <laughs> can we pay you to use this as a cover? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> 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 you mean, wait, let me get this straight. I don't have to do any work and you just pay me money. Then yes.
2: <laughs>
1: like, so yeah, it was a variant of a rocket raccoon issue. Numbers eight, seven. Okay. One of those. But, uh, my, the only thing there that kind of bummed me out was the trans, uh, it was done in spot color, the illustration. And then when it was, uh, converted to CMYK, the, orange is dulled pretty significantly. So it's the poster looks way better than the cover, but, and also I drew it for a different size formatting, like movie poster size. Okay. But still, you know, I, I got, I drew two whole things. Woo. <laughs> but, but I mean, like, uh, it shows I, uh, I've drawn seven images that I sell prints of. You know, there's like a, that Spider-Man cover, there's Thor, there's some Muppet crossover things. I have like Muppets to the Avengers from like 2014, you know, mm-hmm. Sesame Street is JLA, like a bunch of these. It, it, I still have copies of the poster, but the whole thing plus a thing is kind of worn thin now after a few years. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, you know, so I, there's, there's illustrations you buy. You know, now that legacy, that reminds me Now that legacy. It's bringing back, um, Guy Thor, maybe they'll be interested in buying that off me as a cover. Hmm. I think you should make a call. (laughs) Yeah, I should should accidentally email that JPEG to somebody. Oh, oops.
0: (laughs) I mean, it's it's not as much of a coincidence as running into the head of Wildstorm at, at Toys R Us, but, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, oh my god, I know those things, they sound, I mean, at this point, it's pruned down to the you know, the coincidental details, but it is really, it was a string that to this day, I'm like, ah, like, that's why I didn't want to blow my opportunity. Once I had my foot in the door. I was very motivated. So I'm like, how often is something like that going to happen?
0: <laughs> For sure. Like that, that, it just sounds like one of those incredible things that you couldn't replicate. Like it's almost, it's too crazy to not be true.
1: Yeah. And well, and, and very early on, there was this weird sort of guilt, honestly, about like, Oh, I didn't, you know, it would hit me every now and then like I don't deserve any of this I just got lucky blah 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 but eventually it settled in that you still have to be ready for and take best advantage of the opportunity when it shows up even if it is unlikely mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's like it's not I mean if I if I didn't if I couldn't paint that face I wouldn't have you know, pass the test, even though I knew how to set up the file from the teacher and so on. And, you know, it's, but yeah, so, so, so I've, I've shed that guilt, <laughs> but still something cause a lot of times, uh, you, you know, you get asked questions all the time at conventions, which is something that I only really started doing in 2014 and then promptly <laughs> burned myself out in like two years. And then, now I do like two a year, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, you get asked by people who are interested in breaking in all the time. They usually want to know two things, you know, how to break in AKA who to talk to, what to show them, that kind of stuff. And from those people when they, you know, they well, how did you do it? And when you give them the short, short version, they're just like, oh, oh, you got lucky. I'm like, all right, well, I guess I did. But um, and then the other thing that they always want to know is, well, you know, what Photoshop do you use? What what pen do you use? What? And I'm like, that stuff doesn't matter. Mm. You know, the what program you use it doesn't matter. Uh,
0: that's true. You have to have what it matters is
1: the yeah, the portfolio matters.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If you could paint really well in Microsoft Paint, they'd give you gigs.
0: Yeah. I actually had a question. I'm looking at your amazing Spider-Man cover, your variant cover. Um when Oh, hey, that was I looked yeah. at, I looked it up quick. Um one thing I'm I'm really struck by which um I'm curious about is um I really like the detail you gave um to the underside of Spider-Man's boot.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, I, it always bothers me that they just draw it smooth.
0: Yeah, it's always smooth. Like whereas a character like Batman, they always show like Jim Lee, especially always kind of shows the treads on, on his boot, but we never see that with Spider Man. And I actually really like that that kind of it's it's not too much. And if you never noticed your foot, the foot you wouldn't notice it. But it's uh, it's a really interesting eye catching detail which I really liked.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, the um, that was one of those where I was like, Should I, I don't know, uh, it bothers me. So I'll just do it and see. Because at that point. Um, my editor had seen me at a convention, and he saw my. Because uh, at that point, I just had a Thor, and a couple Muppet things, and he and he was just like, "Did you draw those?" And I was, and I said, "Yeah." And I was waiting for the the like, "Oh, well, don't do that," you know.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, when you're selling prints, that's definitely the the sort of uh, gray area at shows where there are a lot of people not affiliated with these companies that are making money off their IP and uh, over the years it's actually made me a lot more uncomfortable with that whole concept And
2: mm-hmm. but they look the other way and I don't know, anyway, so I was waiting for the other shoe to drop and so
1: he said, hey uh, yeah, you drew these? Um, I said, yeah <laughs> sheepishly and he goes, he goes oh, I didn't know you could draw you should do me a Spidey cover sometime and I'm like okay and he goes seriously, send me some layouts it's like, all right. So, I sent him some layouts, and the layout didn't have the the shoe bits on it, but uh, I added those in the uh, on the board and prepared to remove them.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, and, I mean, you know, so that was cool. He gave me gave me a shot like that, and
0: very cool. Uh, very
1: cool. Yeah. Cause now you can
0: say I, I've illustrated the cover to yeah. an amazing Spider-Man issue.
1: <laughs> Heck yeah. Woo. And uh, that's actually something, I mean, if you're talking goals, I would love to do more of that. Just, I mean, who wouldn't make everybody's like, Mwah. makes it sound like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I'll do that. No, <laughs> <laughs> I would like them to ask, I would like them to want me to do that.
0: <laughs> yes. Okay.
1: You know, like, uh, cause, I mean, instead of, I would rather spend a lot of time on one piece than just every now and then instead of doing, you know, an entire where it's like panel after panel after panel, it's a grind, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to do throw covers into the mix just, uh, but you know, what can you do?
0: Well, hopefully, you know, that, that Thor cover is just waiting to get sold. (laughs) Yeah.
1: What's a, it also sounds a bit like oh they want me to color too many things. Okay. <laughs>
0: well, I mean, no, I don't think so. Because I mean, everyone wants chances to do new things that'll that'll you know allow them to grow in different ways, or at least to scratch different itches in different ways. Um, True. So, you know, so it makes sense to you know want to stretch your wings once in a while to be able to do a cover here or there, and, and just you know again try to uh, use a part of your your uh, toolbox that you don't get to use as often because you are in a, in a specific area, which only allows you to kind of do colors that once in a while you get to do pencils and inks as well.
1: Yeah. Like for a while I was doing, uh, taking commissions at conventions and I'm wrapping up the very end of those because as much as I like how a lot of them turned out, um, I didn't really enjoy the commission experience much because, you know, it's either you charge a lot for your time or you, you know, if you undercharge, then you end up with tons of people asking for things and you don't have any time to spend on it. And so the results are always like, "Mm." but then, Hey, they didn't pay much. But then if you charge a lot and people agree to it, then you have all this pressure of, oh, I got to make this perfect. And then you end up spending way more time. So your hourly wage is like back to Toys R Us levels. <laughs> and you're, <laughs> I mean, I'm not even exaggerating this one that I'm finishing today. It's like, especially when they're late. Cause I mean, uh, I reluctantly was taking them toward the end of, uh, <laughs> here's how late they era around 2015. <laughs> <laughs> like I was, you know, cause I was trying to, eh, I, was just, I just wanted to go to shows and just, you know, you don't want to go back to your hotel room after spending, you know, nine, ten hours at the convention and then do more work. Ugh. So so anyway, I know, well, poor me, poor me. But uh, but yeah, so I'm almost done with that. And then all the drawing that I'll be doing now will be just like for fun. on Because, you know, those blank sketch cover variants, those things are great.
2: Hmm.
1: Like now I can do whatever I want. So I'm I'm free of the pressure of like having to try and meet this client's request and I can just do what I want and then price them with what I think they're worth or how much time I spent on it and then just let people flip through. And if they see something that catches their eye, fine. If not, you know, it lets me draw not, um, not in a, cause again, we, we talked earlier about being in a vacuum. If you, if you get, go to a convention, you're actually around your colleagues, which are mostly just names on emails on screens. So you want to actually spend some time, you know, forging that relationship or, or hanging out with uh, people that you know well or whatever, you know, you rarely see them. Yeah. So I don't want to be going back to my hotel room, killing myself to try and make, you know, this, picture of Gambit look exactly the way so I think this person's going to want. I'd rather you know, whenever I get downtime at home sit there and go like, you know, I'll try something with Gambit and then just play around with it and if it sucks well, I'll just chuck it, you know, or price it really low. Because mm-hmm. when you have to agree to a price up front, and, you know sorry, there's a whole tangent, but
0: no, it's no, definitely I No, mean, that's, that's the type of thing we don't always hear as much about it either because people wonder about that kind of stuff and what the kind of uh, the backroom of pricing and that kind of stuff, how that works, and that makes a lot of sense. That you know, you this isn't an, an extra thing you're doing. It's not your your regular kind of stream of work. Uh, right. but you still want to do a good job on it, and it's as you said, it's it's challenging because there's so many other factors that uh, us the consumers would probably never think about.
1: Well, another thing too is that when you were talking about opening up a different avenue of uh, of work or a different aspect to it, like. Every one of these commissions I always look at as an opportunity to show, you know, to add to my portfolio or see, let editors see what I can do as outside of color work. And so there's that additional thing to, of, you know, I want each piece to kind of hold up and, you know, it just, it creates all this, uh, all this pressure, whereas, uh, cause, once you send it, because commission-wise, it's more pressure than if I'm doing it for fun. Because if I do it for funsies and I'm at home, doop a doop a doo, I'm going to try this. Oh wow, this is kind of a weird thing. I'm going to see if that works. Oh, that didn't really work. Well, at least now I can just chuck it. Yeah, you know, experiment. There's never a failure. You know, you learn from something, something from everything. But but if you send out a commission, you're not entirely happy with or whatever. Someone else has it. They can post it wherever they want. That image is going to get around mm-hmm. and be associated with your name. And so if you um, – if it sucks, you know, maybe that prevents you from getting work. So, you know.
0: Talk about – I mean, yeah. that's another way that the uh, the digital age has kind of made things a lot harder. <laughs> Like once upon a time, this was something that no one had to worry about. Like if someone had a commission yeah. that maybe wasn't the best, or what were they? Gonna, they were going to show it to their friends, maybe. Uh, now they yeah, show yeah. it to everybody.
1: Well, yeah, or they throw it right up on eBay. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, ordinarily, you know, I don't, I understand that they're. You know, when people are looking to flip things and whatnot, and that's fine. Uh, the, the, the main thing, um, yeah, so, I mean, so yeah, when I'm, I want to be happy with it, but I also, I want them to be happy with it, but I also want it to feel at least somewhat representative of what I, where I'm at, uh, artistically or whatever. But then, yeah, pricing for all that stuff is, is a whole, I don't know, that's something that's a weird thing because it shows (laughs) I don't know if you're interested in all that. Like, it shows when you, if you tell a person a price, it's weird. If you if you ask them like, I don't know this much question mark, they always are like, oh, it's not worth that. But if you just go like, oh, that's this much, and you just make it like, uh, you remove your yourself, you make it passive, you know. <laughs> oh, these are that much. Mm. People just go okay, or they go hmm. It's weird. It is psychologically. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> And there's this, there's this middle range where if you price your stuff kind of in the middle people, it's not, if you price it more expensive, people go, Oh, it must be great and it must be worth it. And then if you price it cheap, people are like, Oh wow. Sure. I'll do that all day. But then in the middle somewhere they're like, Oh, that's a little more than I want to pay. And it doesn't seem like it's that much of a premium. So it's yeah. Psychologically it's, it's very weird.
0: Let's let's end on a, on a comic related note. Uh, going, oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> or at least uh, actually your your printed work. Um, going back to Young Avengers, uh, when you worked on that with uh, with Jim, um, when he came up with the original kind of designs of the characters, uh, did he come up with the the kind of the color palettes, or did you work on that with him in terms of how what these characters would look like from a color perspective?
1: Um, for Young Avengers. We tossed ideas around, I mean, usually when characters are being designed, the the designer or the penciler has, you know, they have color in mind. So some of the things that the tiny details sometimes, you know, things like on Patriot where what areas were like a white stripe or a blue stripe or a white or red or, you know, we, we moved that around a lot, spent a lot of time on that. But, you know, for the most part, they usually know more or less what they want. I'm trying to think. Like, I got to break down some of the armor. Like, I got to design the color palettes for, like, the McNiven Guardians outfits.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Um, and I got to... <laughs> There's... Um, but yeah, so... But a lot of times, like Miles Morales, I mean, it's not like that's that involved color wise. But they already knew, you know, it was uh, red on black. And Young Avengers, for the most part, were figured out kind of as we went. I'm trying to think, uh, yeah, Jim had definite ideas. I mean, because those things have to be decided on through editorial also and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So there's usually just a, a very flat color rough when, once they settle on how the outfit's broken down, usually the, the pencil will just kind of like very quickly flat in, you know, green here, silver there, whatever. And, uh, so that the editors can visualize it as they decide which, you know, which mix of shapes on the outfits mm. they're going to go for this time. <laughs> Well, that's one thing I've noticed over the years, especially now that the cinematic stuff has started, is what used to be. I guess Spider Man's one that has retained, well, discounting the, the, the Peter backlit spider armor kind of version, but for the most part, he's still kind of, you know, red and blue spandex. Mm-hmm. But most of the new character designs are those really intricate things like the films, where they've got, you know, different combinations of textures and little teeny touches of color here and there and it's uh i mean i think it makes it look a lot cooler but it definitely
2: <laughs> uh,
1: like on civil war yeah. keeping all those war two sorry keeping all those little teeny costume details correct was like took forever <laughs>
0: Well, I have a question about uh, color detail as well. Now, uh, to be fair, I'll say up front, I am slightly colorblind, so this is a little harder for me. Um, but um, what was it like kind of nailing the right color palette for the original version of Kate Bishop? Because, like, her hers, I mean, the other characters had a very specific color scheme that was pretty easy to tell. Uh, with Kate's, it was a lot darker and more muted. What was it like kind of finding the right color? Um
1: I was looking to make it. I don't know. <laughs> it's a personal thing, personal peeve for any team book. Like they can end up looking like skittles very easily. Where <laughs> you know, I mean, like if you go to classic, uh, well, now it's classic. Like the Jim Lee X-Men, for example. Okay. Rogues wearing green, Wolverines wearing brown, Gambit's wearing purple and blue, Cyclops wearing blue, like Storm's wearing black, like every color, just boop, 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 boop. And, um, and so whenever it's up to me, I try to keep the team to as few colors as possible. Like when I designed the Guardians, the very first armors for a lot of them, everything, I was just accenting with red and keeping everything, all the other stuff, like, it was red with a very small yellow insignia. Everything else, because it kind of tied into Iron Man's armor that way, because we already have red and yellow. Mm. And so, and Drax already has red tattoos. Gamora's got yellow accents in her eyes and stuff. So I was like, all right, so all the armor's going to be completely, you know, black, gray, white, totally devoid of color, except for the accents of red and yellow. And... You can, they still get their own shapes, and you know some have chrome some have black, some have white, whatever. But and so they look individual, but they also look cohesive, and they don't. Because one of the most is, oh man, I'm not finishing sentences. <laughs> one of one of the most complicated things is say in Civil War II is a good example. There's a couple fight scenes I think right at the beginning where it's a weird color palette like there's a big red thing in the sky and now you have you have to do the all of these crazy colored costumes as they would look under red light Hmm. and you know and i forget what the contrasting i think it was like aqua and red or something in that scene and figuring out you know how purple's gonna look how how navy blue is going to look, how red's going to react. Like that takes forever. So I don't know. Uh, I, I usually, so when it comes to Kate Bishop, I was, I, uh, you know, theme it like Hawkeye's colors where it's purple, but give it more like the movie purple leather, which it, so it's, you know, it's not like crazy, like, like purple. It's, <laughs> it's just kind of, you know, a little more subdued white scarf, like keep it down to one color, like, Purple, maybe those like, you know. Her lenses are meant to be a very similar purple, but you can just see her skin tone through it, so that it warms it up, okay, a little bit. Mm-hmm. But everything's meant to be, you know, pretty much purple and white. Okay, but yeah. So in general, I don't know. That's that's my preference. <laughs> <laughs> um, Would you like my opinion on other things? I'm here all night.
0: (laughs) And so, right now, people can find your work on, I guess what, Defenders, Spider Man, and Missing One.
1: Spider Man 2.
0: Spider Man 2. How could I miss that one? That's a big book. Again, (laughs) another big book that you're working on.
1: Yeah. Only one issue, I think, is out so far, though. True. That's probably how. Uh, I mean, issue two is, though, issue two is done and off to the printers. So. Uh, yeah. That's (laughs) that's not confusing at all. Working on Spider Man and Spider Man Two. Yeah, especially when you're working on Spider Man, Spider Man Two Number Two, and Spider Man (laughs) Twenty.
0: Well, I remember when I was I think reviewing the first issue of Spider Man, I was like Spider Man Two Number One. It's just like you have to say it a few times, be like, okay, this is the book I'm talking about.
1: Right. Exactly. And. Um. yeah, I used to do all the summer um, crossovers, now I do the summer sequel ones, because I did Civil War 2 and Spider-Man 2. Oh, that's funny. I'm I becoming a hack. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, Justin, thank you so much for spending so much of your time with us this evening, and uh, oh, sure. walking us through... Uh, some fascinating beginnings first of all um an amazing story about how you got of got into the industry um thank you for telling us a little bit more about the cross days as well as uh what it's been like being a, a marvel exclusive
1: sure no problem uh y- you will you will edit it down so i don't sound quite as uh <laughs> rambly right <laughs> <I'm> just... <laughs> uh, a
0: right. little
1: i i like the authentic it, feel of it I, I was it's a half joke like if you <laughs> did i'd i'd be like i'd be like all right i'm sure there's a tangent here there uh <laughs> it's like uh, or you can do the, that thing like uh like playstation has where you can play it at 1.5 speed and it still plays the audio
0: yeah so i, I, like I i'm embarrassed bit. to say i listen to almost every podcast i listen to now at one and a half speed because i have so many that i listen to
1: no way really you can do that like what what i mean here's a tangent also but
0: sure. what sort of Uh, What app or whatever do you listen to? So I listen to it on the uh, the podcast app on from my iPad. Um, So it doesn't feel unnatural; like it just it's sped up, but not in like a Chipmunky way. Um, It's just a little faster, and you have to kind of keep track of it a little bit better. But uh, it, for the most part, like it's gotten to the point where some of them I almost can't listen to it on regular anymore because it doesn't feel right; it doesn't sound right to me, uh, which is really messed up.
1: So, well you you're just training your brain to require absolutely. conversations
0: absolutely though. i'm used to hearing these people's voices at a as a somewhat faster speed uh there's one in particular that um i've gone it's a comedian and he has a podcast that i've been i've been enjoying for like the last 5 years and i've seen him live a few times but the last which time, one uh greg Proops. oh great okay uh, so I'm a, a big fan, and he's coming to Toronto in a few months, and I'm going to go see him, and I was thinking, you know, the, la- the last time I saw him, I'm pretty sure it was before I started listening to everything at one and a half speed, so I don't even know, I'm almost going to have to like retrain my mind so that when I see him live, I won't be like, this is too slow
1: oh my god these pauses are forever
0: because <laughs> you don't think about it when it's running at a fast speed i don't know why i started doing it but i think it's partially that I, I have so many podcast subscriptions and i enjoy a lot of them and i try to listen to them while i work and um oh yeah but i got behind so then i was like this is an easier way of me keeping on top of something that only i care about which is keeping on top of my podcast speed
1: oh yeah they <laughs> i didn't know they had the 1.5 thing on there that's uh yeah. That's pretty handy dandy.
0: I've tried two times. It's too it's too fast.
1: Oh yeah, that's uh, yeah yeah. I don't even know how. My problem. I think you touched on this. Is it might pull too much focus if I'm having if it's going so quickly. Like uh, at normal speed, you know, just contrasting with your thing. Like uh, at normal speed, I can work and listen at the same time, and not never get lost, even if my work demands. Uh, some thought for a second mm-hmm. you know that then you haven't missed much in that in those few seconds while you're making a decision or whatever and uh, yeah normally i'm <laughs> i'm hurting for content where it's like oh i'm running out of audiobooks or i'm running out of podcasts or whatever because uh-huh. there, there are a bunch out there. but yeah so the 1.5 i love it uh as an option though because that is like when people recommend things and you're like, I don't know, the 1.5 is
2: great for that.
0: <laughs> oh, for sure. Like sometimes I'll download one. And I'm like, this is long. I know I'm going to enjoy it, but it's long. And now it's like, well, it's not, not nearly as long. Yeah. But I oh, guess if, you're, if you're hurting for content, don't do that.
1: <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, cause that's like, I like the Joe Rogan podcast for that because he, his are like two or three hours mm-hmm. per, per episode. So that, and it's just a conversation where, it ebbs and flows you know some of it's interesting some of it's meh. and and but it's great because you don't have to focus on it all the time but you still get the information or like a there's one called hardcore history i don't know if you've ever heard that one i have yeah yeah those <laughs> i could see that doing that at uh, 1.5 because that those are long
0: yeah i i the I know. even though I've had longer episodes of my own podcast, I find that uh sometimes it's just too intimidating and I'm like, I don't even know if I wanna like I almost want to listen to if someone broke it down like a three hour podcast into like, you know, six or like five pieces, I'd probably be like, Ah, I'll listen to all of these because they're shorter and they I oh, yeah, feel yeah. more accomplishment because I'm actually going through a number of them as opposed to one big one, which is so ludicrous a weird concept to be like, Well, I'm getting stuff done I'm listening to podcast well, today.
1: Well, productivity is a is a very modern obsession. So, you know, to give you sort of like a a feeling of accomplishment or productivity at each segment break, you know, that I, I could see that being psychologically satisfying. Like, um, <laughs> there's uh, what was I going to say? Uh, totally lost my thought that's that's a good sign that I have uh, <laughs> my brain it's falling apart <laughs> <laughs> no, no I like I, I, I we're it's not going to be anything worth digging up probably but the um, but yeah the modern times there's I know when first world problems we have too much entertainment to keep up with
0: <laughs> it's like but we like do
1: my DVR's like the second job
0: yeah <laughs> I know what you mean. Although, actually, I think I had more on my PBR before I had a, 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 a child, because now everything is for him, and oh. I, th- I have, like, nothing on there anymore.
1: Ah, uh, that sucks. <laughs> Although, see, yeah, I don't know if Canada gets the MLB network, but... Uh,
0: we don't, but I end huh. up watching everything on the MLB TV these days, but I watch a lot of baseball
1: cuz like there's a show called Quick Pitch that they play every night and oh, it's yeah. like the highlights from every game in an hour. Wow. And so I DVR that and <laughs> when you know if I haven't sat at the TV for a few days those are stacked up and I got to get through those. <laughs> got to get current <laughs> in the league. Oh god. And then all the other shows just stack up like right now I think I have 7 episodes of Preacher 6 episodes of Preacher. Oh wow. You know and I didn't even realize it. It restarted because I hadn't gotten that far down my DVR, and I'm like, "Oh, oh,
0: preacher. <laughs> This little this little gift was a, was was accumulating at the bottom.
1: Okay, you know, again. yeah. <laughs> hey, here we are on on what's on your DVR? New segment.
0: <laughs> well, again, thank you so much. I appreciate your time, and uh, we'll make sure to oh, have thanks. you have you back at some point, and uh, we'll have a, a lot more tangents,
1: I'm sure. Okay. Cool. Yeah, uh, this was super fun. Uh, if you're into rambling and stuff, but no. Uh, yeah, I do it uh, pretty much any time.
0: Excellent. Okay, and uh, this will go up in a couple weeks.
1: All right. Cool. Let me let me know.
0: We'll do. Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. Take care.
0: Take care. Bye.
2: All right. Bye.